Jack Spirico with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is November 16th, 2012, and it is Friday, Friday, Friday. And this is episode 1022 of the Survival Podcast. And since it's Friday, it's time for your calls. Your calls to the Think Line, 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. Occasionally I get asked, could you just give out the, the numbers without the uh, think? So sure, uh, 866-658-4465, 866-658-4465. That's the number you call. You get an answering machine when you call that. You leave me a message in two to three minutes or less, and uh, you make your point up front if you want to get on the air. You do not give me a bunch of details and then make your point at the end because I will never get to the end of the call because I have to screen about a bazillion calls to find 10 or 12 to put on the air. So that's what you'll do if you want to be on the air. You'll also call from a quiet location with a decent cell phone connection if you're on a cell phone. If you call while you're running a weed ear on the back of a lawnmower or driving down the road in a giant truck with the windows open, I will probably not put your call on the air. And I'm telling you, if you don't make your point immediately, you're probably not going to get on the air because you're going to ramble on, you're going to get to the end of the call, you're going to call me back and say you're sorry and then do it again. That's what's going to happen if you don't know your question or your point when you make the call, like the 15 calls that got kicked out today because that's what people did. Don't mean to pick on anybody. I'm just telling you, that's what happens. All right. So before we get to your calls, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is JM Bullion. You know, I really looked hard to find you guys a silver and gold dealer that would provide you First-class family business-style service, but yet could give you pricing that would compete or beat the big boys. That's what I found in JM Bullion. You're talking about a company where you can call up and talk to the owner if you want to, but yet you can buy silver and gold from them for less than you can from a big, uh, well-known uh, metal house like Atmex or Monix. Check them out today, jmbullion.com. Remember, they do give you a discount as well if you're an MSB member on larger orders. Orders over 300 get one discount. Orders over 1,000 get another additional discount uh, added to it. Next up today, Survival Gear Bags. The awesome Kelly John Doe, who's been around in the Survival Podcast community since about episode 50 or 60, somewhere back then. Uh, he is really a great guy. They do a really good job. They have some really innovative products. Check them out today, survivalgearbags.com. Uh, before uh, I, I move on from there, I want to remind you guys that Most of our sponsors do give some kind of a discount, not all. So if you are a member support brigade member and you're going to buy anything from one of our sponsors, check your members brigade area for a discount first. But if you don't see them there, some of them just can't do it for one logistical reason or another. The other thing to remember, though, is there are a lot of people that give discounts to the member support brigade that are not sponsors. So whenever you're going to buy anything, check your discounts first. Just wanted to remind that because occasionally I get you know a question, so-and-so is a sponsor, where's their discount? They're not required to do an MSB discount to be a sponsor. We ask them to. Most of them do. Not all of them can due to margins or logistics or computer system limitations. Because here's what I won't do. I will not let a vendor do a complicated discount. If you're like, we only want to discount this one item, and they have to call us before they – no. It's too com – if you can't automate it, then I can't have you as a discount vendor. Just wanted you guys to know that. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content. You get all those great discounts I just talked about. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, prior service, 
consider, uh, not consider, please email me before, not after you join, and ask me for the discount code. If you're an existing member and you want the discount on renewal, uh, get in touch with me You know, a few weeks to a month before your renewal date, and we'll square you away with how to do that. Uh, all right, so I have a couple big announcements before we take your first call. Um, the first one, and I guess it's the big announcement, is it looks like we found our new homestead. It's only about a three-acre piece, but it is three acres that is going to be absolutely beautiful to develop from a permaculture and self-sufficiency standpoint. Uh, the house is located a little bit to the front, but just about center of the property, uh, so we don't have any narrow strips to deal with. The, the property layout on three acres is almost a square. It's a very, uh, it's a, it's a very minor rectangle, but almost a perfect square. That gives us a tremendous amount of uh, ability to, uh, to design multiple food forests, multiple gardens, multiple sectors, multiple things like that. Um, it's going, it, it's a relatively flat piece with just enough slope to provide enough catchment, uh, to do a lot of earthworks. I've been talking with Jeff Lawton. We will be doing a workshop this spring, most likely, bringing Jeff in as the designer. So Jeff Lawton himself will be designing the earthworks. I will be running a workshop for that. I'm telling you guys this now because I have to tell you two things about it that were not my original intentions. One, for those of you that wish to attend, it is not going to be cheap. It's going to be quite expensive, somewhere in the $1,500 to $2,000 range because I have to do that, and I'll explain why with the next thing. I have to do that because it's only a three-acre property, and it's not the rural property I originally wanted. It's pretty nice as far as the area. People are spread out. People are not on top of each other. There's no HOA. You feel like you're out in the country. A lot of the houses, you can tell, are built on old farm fields and things like that. Uh, but it's it's relatively close to the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, as specific as I'm going to be about it. The good thing is that I'll be running lots of little workshops and things like that, and people that want to come in for them are going to be able to fly to DFW, which is one of the easiest airports in the world, and spend less than an hour to get out to the property once they get out of the airport. So that's a good thing. But I cannot have a workshop with 40 or 50 people piled into an area that's semi-rural, semi-residential. It's just with the equipment and everything's going to be going on as it is, You know, I'm going to reach out to the neighbors and keep everything calm, but I can't have that kind of a turnout there. Um, so I'm probably going to limit this workshop to around 10 to 12 people and to pay for Jeff and pay for the equipment and then pay for out of pocket all the stuff that's planning to feed everybody, to take care of everybody, to make sure facilities are on site for everybody. It's going to be a very expensive thing to do. And the only way I can do it is to fund it. The good news, since you're looking at 10 to 12 people with Jeff Lawton for four to five days, you're looking at having direct access to probably the best and most talented permaculture designer on planet Earth today. In an intimate uh, environment where you can talk to him, where we can sit down and eat together, uh, where we can work together, where you can spend that kind of time with me as well and with each other. That would not happen with a 40 to 50 headcount workshop. I could charge a lot less money, but... I would also have people, you know, feeling like, you know, they're somewhat disassociated. I'm going to talk to Jeff and see if I can work on him with his fee a little bit in exchange for um, maybe taking him fishing a couple days after the workshop's over, one day and then the next day. I may try to figure out how to uh, to make that available to a couple people as well, but we'll see. Uh, but I know great guides in the area, and I know Jeff's a big fisherman, so... The big news, we found the, the place, and the big big news also, Jeff Lawton Workshop's going to happen, and we're going to try to schedule it with the travel here. And I've got a guy, 
in the audience that I think may come in and run. So I'm going to have to pay for the equipment, but I might get, I might have to have two pieces of equipment to do all this. But one of the operators may be there kind of in exchange for getting to be there. And he's an amazing guy. And I know him. He lives here in the Arkansas area. He runs an excavator company. If you look at my, my Hugo culture videos when we did the first in ground beds, he was the operator that did that. And my point to him was be like, You're like a master sculptor getting to come work with Michelangelo, and he seems pretty key on that. So uh, this is going to be a cool thing, but it's going to be a smaller headcount, and I want to explain the high price that this is what it's going to take to do it. Uh, I can't afford, especially with buying a new house, trying to sell my other house, all this other stuff, to uh, to bring a guy in you know, at over a, a grand a day, plus airfare from Australia, and, and, and not do that. It's the only way I can make it happen. But I think there's probably enough people out there that would really appreciate that, that would figure out how to make it work. And, you know, we may be able to work with something like a $1,000 down, two payments of $500 or something like that. I don't know. We'll see. And I'm not going to just say that's going to be the price. I'm going to put everything together as far as the equipment Jeff wants, as far as the plantings that we need to do, the accommodations, how I'm going to feed you guys, all of that. And I'm going to dump it into Excel. And Excel will give me the number because Excel never lies. And I can't take a beating on this thing if I want to do it. And I have to do it bigger, faster, if I'm bringing Jeff Lawton in. Uh, and that's the other thing I want you guys to understand. So you don't think I'm just trying to, like, you know, pull money out of people or something. If I was doing this myself, this thing would really get phased in over two years. Um, a lot of stuff probably still will get phased in because Jeff will leave me with a design. But the earthworks, the swales, the ponds, the dams... The hydro mulching, cover crops. If you're bringing a guy like Jeff Lawton, you have to make 100% use of him while he's here. So I have to do a lot more work a lot faster, and I have to pay for it up front instead of phasing it in. The thing is, the people that come when you leave, when it comes to a mid-sized property, like let's say a 2- to 10-acre property, you're going to have an understanding that I think very few people in the United States will possibly ever have. Of something like this. So wanted you guys to know that. I've been getting a lot of inquiries about the Jeff Lawton thing that I've been planning. Uh, a lot of people that want to come. I know some people are going to be angry or upset or just feel like they're left out because I have to limit the headcount or jack the price up. But in the scenario we're in, with the amount of equipment and all in an area like this, I can't have 50 people running around. And if I can't have 50 people running around, a $500 workshop becomes a $2,000 workshop really, really fast. It's the only way I can do it. I hope people understand. And with that, let's go ahead and take the first call. Hi, Jack. My name is Sean Albert, and I've got a question. Um, is how can I best prep my ground for a new garden? I just moved into a house with a lot of acreage, um, about 70 acres, and we're going to garden a plot, about a 40 by 40 section. Right now it's just grass and weeds that are growing, and uh, it's Georgia clay with no real soil under it. So I'm planning to go with a uh, mulch bed garden fully organic, and I'd like to start planting by next year as soon as possible. So I'm just wondering how can I best prep that ground for a mulch garden to get rid of whatever's growing beneath it and do a mulch bed on top of it. So that's my question. So I really enjoy your show. Thanks for the great info. Thank you. Well, there's a lot of ways you could approach this. You could rent a sod cutter and cut the sod layer off of it and, and, and put your mulch bed on top of that. Uh, it's probably not the best way. You could till it and Um, it's probably better that you don't, but tilling when you're going to do something for the first time, not once it's established, is nowhere near as 
bad a thing as people make it out to be that are of the no-till mentality. I am of the no-till mentality, but initial tilling is generally not that bad, except you're in clay, and you're going to get a much worse compacting of the clay if you till than you would if you were in sandy loam or something like that. When a tiller tills, the problem is it only goes down a certain depth. And everything below that depth is basically hammered down in. And it, it, you basically can make a, almost a little pond there in that red clay. So I probably wouldn't till it either. So what are the two probably best options that you have? One would be to lay out the area that you're looking to use. Go into that area and lay down a layer of about four to five or six or more deep of newspaper Do not use the, um, the, the shiny stuff. Use only the, you know, regular black and white newsprint. Uh, maybe deeper than that. Maybe, I'd say, Sunday edition thick, right? So you're talking about just big, as much as you can, and on top, and then soak that. I mean, soak it till you, it's just, it's just a mess, right? Soak it as you're putting it down. It'll keep it from blowing away on you. On top of there, then, lay down a layer of cardboard. And soak the living crap out of it. And then make sure you're getting good quality organic material uh, of a compost topsoil mixture. And come in and put about four inches of that on top of the topsoil. And then put you a big layer of mulch on there. And doing it that way, you're probably, if you can get yourself a bunch of straw bales delivered or go find them and pick them up, a big layer of straw on there. And you start next year, when you start planting, you plant. Don't even worry about the cardboard and the paper. Don't try to make a hole through it. Just keep it really wet through the winter. And you're going to get a lot of breakdown. Get that layer of mulch and material on top of it now, as quickly as possible. And by spring, it'll still be there. It'll still be blocking back weeds. But it takes a lot more for a weed seed buried under all of that to emerge through it than it takes for a root to go down through it. It doesn't take much at all. Worms, things will move in there, fungal stuff, bacteria, they'll break that down. That's, that's one way, and that's an easy way if you don't have and you're not going to have animals in the next couple months. The best way, in my opinion, would be to go in there with a flock of chickens and give them some supplemental feed, but electro-fence them in or temporarily fence them in however you're going to do it and put a flock of birds in there and let them tear that stuff till there's nothing left. Just let them just be, I mean, if you listen to the podcast I did the other day about animals and permaculture, basically do that, but instead of moving them around, moving them around, moving them around to make a food forest out of them, just use them to clear that area. And they'll do a fabulous job for you. They'll remove pests, they'll remove the seeds and the roots, and it won't be, and then I would still go in there once you're done, and instead of worrying about all the newspaper and cardboard, I still might cardboard it after that. Um, at a minimum, though, I'm going to bring in some good organic matter topsoil. I'm going to build it up, and I'm going to go ahead, and I'm going to put down a heavy layer of mulch. If it's anything less than four inches thick on the mulch, it's not thick enough, and an eight is probably better. Because by the time you get through your winter and get into your spring planting, eight inches is going to become three or four. It's going to compact down. It's going to get wet. It's going to start to break down and decompose. So you're building up with that. Don't be concerned, though, if over time that begins to kind of settle down and you end up less of a raised bed. Because what's going to happen is, no matter how you do this, earthworms and critters and things like that are actually going to go down into the subsoil of clay, back up, back up and down, and they'll till this together, and you'll end up with a mixture of sand, organic matter, and clay 
far deeper than you've started out. They'll take it down and they'll bring some of the clay up, and that's good because it helps build structure. Those are the two best ways I would say to do that. You could do it some other ways, but I would pick one of those two and go with it. Either put some animals out there, and you could do this with goats, uh, but they won't do it the way a chicken will. You could do it with hogs, and they'll do a great job. But chickens are probably the easiest, low-cost way to do it. Now, this time of year, you're looking at probably trying to find somebody that's got some either half-grown birds or full-grown birds to do that with. But the size of land you have, I'm probably thinking you're going to want chickens anyway. So you can go out and buy these chickens for a few bucks a piece, set them up, and then set them up with their own housing you know, elsewhere. You can actually let them do this work for you. Because this is the good news. Since you're only going to have them there once, they can't overdo it. If they have to sit there for three or four weeks and they really turn it into a mucked-up mud hole before you move them off to their proper area, you know, people would say it's chicken abuse or whatever. They won't care. And they will do a fabulous job for you. And by the time you've got them over to their proper housing, their proper rotations, however you're going to use them, that garden spot will be fertilized, tilled, and ready to go. And you lay down some organic matter and mulch on top of that, And, and, buddy, you've got success. You almost cannot fail. So that would be my preferable way. If you can't do it, then what I'm going to say is just kill it with paper and cardboard, very, very thick mulch. And right now, the, the good news is if you have to do that instead of the birds, right now is the perfect time to do it. You've got damp, wet, cold conditions. Uh, you're going to be able to suppress most of that stuff off. The biggest concern that I have coming back up, even through a layer like that, is going to be like your nut sedge and stuff like that. Um, that's why it would be better to do birds Uh, if you had a, if you had a neighbor with like some hogs uh, and you just put them on there for a day, they'll dig out all the roots and tubers, and they don't really need to be there much longer than that. You can put them in there right behind the chickens and uh, and let them do their thing. But the lasagna sort of method I gave you as the first one will work just just as well too. Uh, let's take another call. Uh, good morning, Jack. Uh, this is Drew Wright down in sunny Southwest Florida. Uh, quite honestly, I don't you know forgive me for this, but I do not feel anything for the New Jerseyans and the New Yorkers. Granted, their, their codes, their building codes, are not prepared for this kind of a storm, but being a Floridian uh, all my life, uh, when you see a storm and you're told to get out, you get the hell out. Uh, I listened, I just caught up with some of your podcasts, and New Yorkers watching movies and taking takeout, that, that's what they were doing. I don't feel for them at all. The storm was days away. They had plenty of time to go look, get, and, and prepare for what they needed. Well, they hear them crying about, we need this, we need that. Well, they should have gotten it ahead of time. Again, being a Floridian, we've been preppers for three-day, 72-hour stuff, but then we kicked it up a notch a few years ago, and then after um, the last election, uh, which is a repeat of this one, um, we kicked it up a notch a little more, me and my daughter, and we've got three months of food right here in our house, another six months somewhere else, plus seeds that would take us on to uh, years to come. So... Uh, thank you for being the most level-headed survivalist preparedness guy out there on the market today. But uh, forgive me, I don't feel for those people. And, and you know, those who listen and, and learn from you and Stephen Harris and, and all the other survival podcasts out there, God bless them. At least they got it. Uh, you take care of yourself. And, uh, again, I forgive me for not feeling that they're fools. Well, I almost didn't play that uh, call this week because I would have preferred not to have blood shooting out of my eyes this morning. Uh, but let me just say, I I'm going to have to struggle through this entire response to not completely snap out and to not use a word that starts with an F and ends with a K. Because what the hell is wrong with you, sir? What the, what the hell is so 
far screwed up in your brain that you can look at your fellow man suffering and go, I ain't got no sympathy for them. If you were here in my office right now speaking to me that way, I would have to use every tiny bit of self-control in my body not to smack you in your face and throw you out of my door for speaking that way about fellow people. Do you bring up some valid points? Yes. Are they still full of shit? Yes. Let me give you a couple reasons why. When the storms come and you get out, have you ever been in New York City and New Jersey? Do you know how many freaking millions of people are in the affected area? Try about 50 million. Where the hell are they all supposed to go? Now, I agree with you when you're given a mandatory evacuation order to evacuate. I completely agree with that. Here's a little clue for you. Most, not all, most of them did. But once they evacuated, they only had so much, and eventually you go home, and your home's destroyed. What are you supposed to do then? Not all of them are stuck there. Okay? Here's another little clue for you. You just, you're an asshole. Seriously. How do people, how are you so arrogant to think that nothing like this could ever happen to you? Now, I live in Florida, and when I'm told I get out, bullshit. Bullshit. You have no idea when disaster is going to strike and when it's going to hit you. And no matter how well prepared you are, you can be the one kicked in the nuts and laying on the ground. You really could. So some of these people, they weren't asked to evacuate. They were told shelter in place. They were told that their area was not, that they would be best off staying home. They did what they were told. And, that the, and the government screwed that up on some levels, and on some other levels is, where do the 50 million people go? Where do they go? You don't understand the density of population and the constriction of evacuation in the area at all. And here's the other thing. I don't care how unprepared somebody was. I don't care how bad they screw up. If you look at your fellow citizen down and out and hurting and really hurting to the point where they need some help to get back up, and you can help, and you don't, you are part of the problem. You are part of the problem. You are not part of the solution. People like you sicken me. You absolutely sicken me into the deepest pit of my stomach. I cannot understand the ignorance, the arrogance, and the bullshit that makes somebody speak that way. I really can't. I, I don't get it. And I'm going to tell you this, if you're not going to open your mind and learn how important it is for us as a community to help others because we're more prepared than they are, and that doesn't mean to the point where we harm our own family or harm our own communities to do so, but a willingness to make some level of sacrifice to reach out and help your fellow citizen up off the ground, if you're not receptive to that message, I want this to be the last episode of the survival podcast you ever listen to for the rest of your life and go find some arrogant jackass that doesn't care about people and you guys all commune together. And stay the hell away from us if something goes wrong. And I'd like to know exactly who you are, exactly who you are, so that I can make sure unless you come to your senses and apologize for this type of shit, that if you're ever down and out, I make sure that I never help you. And I make sure that anybody that I know that knows you and knows me never helps you because your belief is when somebody's screwed over, you don't help them. And I'm going to tell you guys, that is as calmly as I can address that question. And I'm going to tell you this too. If you have any of this man's arrogance and ignorance in your system right now, I want you to, to go and just get it out of yourself. Get it out of yourself and understand that those people up there suffering right now could be your daughter or your son 
or your mother or your father or your aunt or your uncle or your wife or your husband or you yourself. And if you're so arrogant as to believe that it can't happen to you, don't listen to this show because here's the reality. I cannot help you. If you believe that there is anything that you can do to make sure that you will never be the person receiving the knockout blow, nothing that I do can help you because the entire point is that it can be you. No matter what you've done, no matter how well prepared you are, no matter how well you follow evacuation orders, no matter how you try to cross every T, dot every I, tick every box, fill in every circle, and make sure that you're 100% prepared, tomorrow morning you could be the one in need of help. And if you feel this way towards those people, I hope you're at the back of the line. And I hate saying that about anybody. Because you know what, asshole? I probably still would help you. I still would help you. You sure as hell don't deserve it. So either clean your freaking head, the shit between your ears, get a, get a freaking, uh, what do you call it, an enema, an ear enema, and get the shit off your brain, or go elsewhere. Because we don't need that attitude in this community. Let's take another call before I blow blood from my ears and my eyes simultaneously. Hey, Jack. Phil in Tucson. I have a question for Joe Nobody regarding shooting stances. Joe, what can you tell me about various shooting stances, such as the old Weaver stance, the currently taught Special Forces isosceles lock, and the strange new center axis relock or car stance invented by Paul Castle that I can't find much information about? How do these apply to civilian use, either with or without body armor? What are the disadvantages, advantages, etc.? Thank you guys and the entire TSP community for all your contributions to the country and everything you do. Simplify. I think it's great to get a question for Joe Nobody, and I'm going to kick back and listen to this answer and get myself in a better state of mind for the rest of this show so I don't have to tweak out and snap out again. I think based on all of the other, uh, all the other questions we have in the queue today, you, you just heard your one and only Jack tweak. So let's hear from Mr. Nobody about rifle stances. Joe here to answer Phil and Tucson's question regarding shooting stances. I need to begin this answer with a couple of caveats. First of all, for the average prepper, uh, I'm a strong believer in rifles, not handguns. Uh, again, speaking from a post-collapse point of view, I believe that a pistol is what you use to fight your way back to the rifle, uh, the rifle you should have never been without in the first place. Uh, pistols come up short in practically every aspect that counts in a gunfight. Stopping power, range, capacity, accuracy, uh, you name it. Even in a close quarters battle situation, I would prefer a long gun uh, any day under almost any circumstances. So given that frame of reference, I choose a pistol stance based on uh, my stance for a shoulder-fired weapon. The shoulder-fired weapon is my primary. I tailor my practice, my training, my drills, all of that with that emphasis in mind. Uh, next is I only want one stance be it a long gun, a revolver, uh, a saw, or a shotgun, uh, I want my instincts, my muscle memory, my reactions to always be the same, regardless of what I'm holding to address the threat. So given the previous point, 
Now that leaves me with a modified weaver stance as the only one, the only option that has all of my major body parts in roughly the same position, regardless of a short or a long weapon. Uh, in addition, it's the only one that accommodates my natural reaction of fear, which is to try to hide behind the weapon and expose the least amount of my body to the threat as possible. The isosceles stances are extremely effective, uh, especially for close in handgun combat. If I were a police officer or a citizen who only uh, was concerned about personal protection, there's a lot of justification for those stances. There's nothing wrong with them for pistol work. Um, the average Joe Nobody uh, should exercise extreme diligence when I or anybody else proposes a tactic, a piece of gear, or a method based on special forces, this, that, or the other. Just because elite operators were trained on the subject or tested a piece of gear, that doesn't mean it's a good fit or that their unit adopted it. Uh, those operators are like any other group of people. They end up doing what works best for them. They're constantly experimenting, pressing the envelope. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but more than many, any other military or law enforcement unit, they are given more freedom to choose what, what fits in, the, in their role and in their mission. Everyone should keep in mind that they also practice, train, drill, and then practice some more. Uh, as an example, a professional oper operator may have the time to train his or her body to be proficient with two different stances. Most of us average citizens, uh, we do not have that luxury. As far as Mr. Castle stance, uh, Mr. Castle stance, I only know that it is an instinctive close-in pistol stance. It involves uh, blading the body or standing slightly to the side, uh, and it also doesn't involve using the weapon sights from what I've read. Not had a chance to study it in any detail beyond that or, or, or try his methods. As far as body armor goes, most military body, non-military body armor is going to be weakest on the sides. This uh, has been a justification for police departments for going with the, the isosceles based stances as it keeps the officer facing the threat, uh, their thickest armor forward, if you will. Uh, my personal thoughts on body armor and stances, uh, body armor is a second chance piece of kit. I would rather practice focus on putting lead on the threat, uh, and that way I don't need that second chance. Uh, if there's enough lead flying through the air, the body armor will eventually be either defeated or bypassed anyway. So uh, I, I would advise folks to concentrate on uh, what's the best stance for them to address the target and go from there. Uh, the best to all of you, and I pray no one ever needs any of this advice. Well, great response as expected from uh, Joe. Joe, thank you for serving on the Expert Council. Let's go ahead and uh, take another question. Hi, Jack. This is Jerry. I have a question that's probably for Stephen Harris. It's about inverters. As I understand, there are two types of inverters, the pure sine wave and the modified sine wave, with the pure sine wave being much more expensive. So my actual question is what loads or applications require the pure sine wave type of inverter rather than the modified sine wave? Thank you. Goodbye. Well, I asked Steve to answer that question. He was kind enough to do so. So, Mr. Harris, please uh, give us the uh, skinny on uh, inverters. Jerry, Steve Harris, thanks for calling in the question. I've been getting this question about modified sine wave versus sine wave inverters a fair amount. And there's a reason why I didn't put it into the show that I had on inverters in cars is because it really doesn't matter. 
I try to put things that don't matter not into the shows, only the stuff that does matter. Apparently, this should have been one of the doesn't matter things I should have mentioned. The only thing that needs a pure sine wave is synchronous AC motors, which you are not going to be powering in your house anyways. People go, oh, my electronics, thank God, it's got to have a sine wave. Electronics run off a DC voltage internally. All they do, they do is convert AC to DC, and they convert modified sine wave to DC internally quite perfectly. There's a reason why 95% of the inverters sold, or 98% of them, are modified sine wave. It's because they work just perfectly fine. You do not need to go out and spend the extra money on a pure sine wave inverter. You're just going to get a lot less and spend a lot more, and it isn't going to work. But don't believe me. Go get a modified sine wave inverter, plug it into your car, and plug your TV into it. I plug my 27-inch monitor into it, slash TV, as my backup TV. It draws 55 watts. It works perfect. My laptop works perfect, of course, because the laptop runs on DC. It's got a big converter box on it. Um, gee, your VCR will probably even work perfectly on it as well. i got tons of stories of people running their DVD players and TVs off of the modified sine wave inverters. The end result is it's going to work fine. It's going to work fine for your refrigerator. It's going to work for fine for everything. You don't need to put extra capacitors onto it for a startup load or anything because all those devices that have a startup load already have capacitors in them. So I hope this answers your question, and this is some reinforcement for the rest of you guys. Modified sine wave works just perfectly. Thanks, and uh, all of my stuff, if you want to know more, is at www.solar1234.com. Go listen to all my past podcasts with Jack. You can listen to them right on the site, and keep on calling in the questions, guys. Thank you. Oh, and don't forget, the big Stephen Harris battery bank for your home and battery bank for your car with an inverter show on TSP is coming up in early December. Don't miss it. Well, thanks for Steve for another great answer and just making another one of these things that people worry about something just to stop worrying about. All right, let's go ahead and take another question. Hi, Jack. This is Tony in Texas, and I had a uh, concept for you I wanted to get your uh, opinion on, and that's uh, permaculture food plots. With it being uh, November and a lot of guys going out to uh, go deer hunting and, and have done food plots uh, a few months ago, just thinking about uh, how you could do that in a permaculture way such that uh, – you would have to go back and refill it every year, and maybe uh, even after you quit hunting or whatever, you had something to be able to give back to nature. Anyway, I understand, you know, you could probably do trees and some shrubs, but uh, what other kind of annuals and perennials uh, would you think would be good for, uh, for a project like this? Anyway, look forward to your answer. Thanks. Um, here's the thing about that. Uh, and this is where the struggle would be with making it kind of, let's say, manage the way that you would manage a typical permaculture system, which is a little bit of maintenance, a little bit of ongoing things, and, and just kind of letting it go. It's almost, not completely, but almost impossible because of the natural succession of forest, right? So what I mean by that is if we do a really good job of getting soil prepped, and getting a good mix of clovers and grasses and things like that that would be good material for deer to eat. We're going to have almost this perfect blend of support species and long-term annual reseeding and long-term annual perennial species, and you're going to get this great pasture is basically what you're going to get, and your deer are going to come in and they're going to feed on it. 
they're only going to feed on it so much because they're not like a barn animal that like they're confined and they have to stay there. They're going to roam all around and they're going to feed on it as, as, as they need to. They're going to manure it. They're going to disturb it. Things like turkey and quail and other animals are going to come in and do some soil dis uh, disturbing. And then you're going to get some weeds coming in with your primary species. And then the, the, then the magic's going to happen, right? All by itself, all of a sudden, if you have this like plot surrounded by forest, that forest is going to start sending out little sentinels and soldiers, and they're going to start sending out bushes and understory trees at the edge, especially the edge that is being hit with the sun. And they're going to start growing up and canopying out. And all of a sudden, you're going to come back in two or three years if you don't do anything, and you're going to have this clumpy bush brush thing and in five six years it's going to be scrub forest and in 10 years it's going to be forest you're actually going to set it up to head that way now it won't be a designer forest it won't have all the species you pick for it it won't be as advanced as a typical food forest or uh, a designed forest that we would manage through that process but it's going to go there by itself that's the whole point of permaculture for if we're building a forest that is that This is what nature would do, and by putting in swales, and by chopping and dropping, and by selecting certain species, and killing certain things off at certain times, I can accelerate that. But it's already a natural process. So that leaves us back to, well, how do we, how do we manage that food plot so that we can keep it more of a pasture type, savanna pasture type of situation? And the real only answer is we either have to have so much deer browse, such a high deer population, that they keep it somewhat under control, but yet it's so balanced that they don't kill it. That would be one way we can do it. Another way that we can do it is to bring animals into the equation on our own at certain times of year. Bring in chickens, bring in goats, and graze it and reseed it. And that would be a lot better and a lot more productive than going in there with a four-wheeler dragging a plow and disc machine through it once a year, completely plowing it up because we could get an animal yield off it. And they don't really have to be there that much to get it done. If you had a fairly large plot, let's say an acre food plot's a pretty big plot, and you divided that up into tenths of an acre – And you brought in, let's say, a group of chickens, and they each got a, they went through a tenth acre paddock. Uh, by the time they got to the end of that, you've got broilers that could be harvested, and maybe you do that twice a year, and you're pretty well into keeping it under somewhat under control. Now we can go in there and plant things like apples and persimmons and stuff like that, create more of a savanna situation. And uh, that will provide overstory drop for them that will go in with the browse. That will attract them more. But, of course, we got to get that up over the browse line. Uh, because if we're bringing deer in on purpose and you plant a young apple tree, they're going to tear the hell out of it. So we've got to fence that tree in until it, it, it success is up enough. But there's your, there's your issue, right? So we can do it in a permaculture way, meaning we don't harm the earth, we don't harm people, and we don't take more than a reasonable amount from the ecosystem. But to keep it... In a perennial state, unless the natural state of the environment is a perennial grass state, is going to be difficult. So this means if you're trying to do this, and I don't even know if it's legal to do food plots in Virginia, but in Virginia, it's going to be a lot harder to keep in that kind of savanna state than, than you know, West Texas. West Texas, we can get a little bit of natural irrigation, natural water retention going on there. A lot of these places, that kind of you know, low growth is very, very typical even in a native untouched state. 
as long as your cedars and junipers don't move in on you, and then you've got a different problem. So it's going to be a struggle. It's probably not going to be a hands-off situation, but you certainly can do it in a variety of ways. It's a matter of how big, where at, how often you can get there, and what resources you have available. But understanding the battle is how you win the war. So the battle is the natural state of the system is going to be to progress toward forest. So we need to do something in that case, that that plot area, to hold that advancement back. We either have to do it mechanically or with animals. Those are really we can't do it chemically. There's no chemical way to do this uh, that would be permaculture because anything that would kill the things we're talking about would kill the, the food plot itself. So we have to advantage what we want and disadvantage what we don't want. One great way to do that, again, would be to bring in animals for a part of the year during the non-hunting season, during the peak growth, that help control the situation. Any kind of animal that can be held in with a low fence, as long as it's big enough that the deer aren't afraid to come over the fence, they could coexist with the deer. And you could just use some grazing goats or something like that, uh, move them in, move them out. That's about the only way I can think of, other than to get in there and mechanically cut and harvest and chop and drop. That's the only way I see that you're going to hold back Mother Nature, so to speak. But if it's a tenth of an acre food plot, then ten visits, not ten visits, I'd say five visits a year out there cutting down any trees and things like that, and, and you know maybe with a, with a root mattock and, and pulling up some of the, the trees and shrubs that start to sprout, and doing a little bit of overseeding of what you want, you can probably maintain that without a lot of labor. But if you're talking like several acres, um, you're going to have to bring animals into the equation, or you're going to have to bring a tractor and cut into the equation. Those are your only two ways. And you're going to have to, probably in any situation, continue to reseed, just nowhere near the rate you had to seed the first time. If I was doing this and I had chickens in a paddock, and I had them on a tenth of an acre paddock or a twentieth of an acre paddock, as soon as they left that paddock to the next paddock, I would get my high protein, clover, uh, you know, uh, whatever other items we're going to be planting for the deer mix, and I would be sowing straight behind the chickens. And I would not let them take it down to bare earth in that situation. I would just let them kind of bring it down. When it looks like it's been, let's say, 50% taken down, move them and overseed. And that disturbed earth, that manure, it'll go crazy. And you can really manage it that way. But the question is, do you have access to your hunting property to be able to do that? With If you live on site, that's exactly how I would do it. And now it's a two-fold property. It's a protein production property, uh, and it's a, it's a feed plot. If you live 100 miles away, probably can't pull this off. So then we got to bring in some kind of mechanical device to do this with. Let's take another call. Actually, the next one's not a call. Somebody sent me an email, and it was for me. And I looked at it, and I thought this would actually be a really good question for Paul Wheaton to answer because I'm really switched on with a lot of stuff with permaculture and a lot of stuff with gardening. But one thing I've never really done a lot of gardening with or growing of is potatoes. I grow a lot of sweet potato, but conventional potato in the South, it's a little bit more of a struggle. It just has never really been worth my effort. So here's the question, and then we'll get an answer from Paul Wheaton, also a member of the Expert Council. What factors may contribute to the increase in the size and yield on potatoes? I grew potatoes for the first time this year in large plastic pots in the layering method you talked about in a previous episode. I grew Yukon Golds and some red potatoes. The only thing I didn't adjust was the pH level of the soil. My soil was at a constant neutral level of 7.0, and I've read that potatoes like to be in acidic soil. 
Anything else that I may be missing? I live near Portland, Oregon. I planted around Mother's Day, harvested in early September, and watered every other day with a drip irrigation system. Thanks, Will. Okay, Will, let's go ahead and get an answer on potatoes from Mr. Potato himself, Paul Wheaton. Hi, Jack and Will. This is Paul Wheaton from Permies.com. I'm going to try and answer your question about potatoes, specifically about pH stuff. Um, I pulled up some notes that I wrote down uh, in that summer where I read 100 gardening books, and I wrote down the pH for potatoes, and I got it from seven different books. Seven different books mentioned pH for potatoes, and the common range between them all ended up being about 5.0 to 5.4. And the reason why you want to use a more acidic soil is to prevent uh, scab. But a lot of potatoes will do fine with a higher pH. So if your pH is only 6.5, you'll probably be just fine. It's, and um, it, it just won't thrive as much. So um, uh, don't worry too much about the pH unless your um, soil is, is particularly alkaline. Now, Will, you said that you're in Portland, Oregon. So I uh, imagine that your pH typically is going to be slightly acidic, even though you reported that with your potatoes, your pH was neutral at 7.0. I would imagine that your pH is going to be hovering around 6.0, 6.2 for most of your soil there. Now, you, it sounds like you might have done a container thing. I'm not sure if that's what you're going to continue doing or um, if you're going to go into some kind of a more open soil. Now, hugel culture is something where potatoes seem to love hugel culture more than anything else. Now, granted, damn near everything really loves hugel culture, but potatoes seem to love it even more. Um, another thing is, is is to keep your soil loose, and your uh, and, and potatoes don't like a wet seed. They also don't like a clay soil very much. So if your soil happens to be kind of a heavy clay soil, you're going to want to amend that with something to kind of loosen it up a little bit. Straw might be a good thing. I think it's my opinion. I haven't verified this with any other sources. I tend to think that potatoes like a high-carbon soil. I especially like to work in a straw. In fact... Uh, a common thing that people do is where they'll plant their potatoes and then they'll mulch it with straw, usually around the beginning of June. If you mulch too early, the potatoes can be uh, too cold and the, the mulch will hold the cold in. But then if you start uh, uh, mulching it with straw, it'll start shooting potatoes out into the straw. It really loves that looseness of the straw. But make sure that you get straw that has not been sprayed with any kind of persistent herbicide in the last five years, because otherwise that'll kill your potatoes. So uh, organic straw is okay, or anything where the farmer seems adamant about, like, not spraying. So uh, be, be careful with that. Um, one, one quick note is that Sepp Holzer once told me that ferns, say, plant potatoes and sunchokes here. So that's showing a really good soil for potatoes and sunchokes. So if you've, and in Portland, I know that ferns grow like weeds out there. So uh, if, you, if you have a patch of soil someplace, you've got a lot of ferns in it, that's going to be a great place to plant potatoes. Um, when it comes to companion planting, companion planting is like a step closer to polyculture. But um, uh, beans are uh, an excellent companion plant. From my old notes, I also show uh, marigolds, broccoli, and garlic are great companion plants. Things that don't do well next to potatoes are pumpkins, sunflowers, tomatoes, and raspberries. Um, potatoes like lots of sun. 
Uh, they're, they're one of the few plants that, that does well with all day sun. They'll just really drink it up, and you'll get really, really uh, uh, great returns uh, with lots and lots of sun. Um, so that's all I got. Um, uh, thanks for giving me a chance to answer your questions. Good stuff from Mr. Wheaton, Paul. Thank you. And remember, I called you Mr. Potato. Don't get offended. It's not like I called you Mr. Potato Head. Uh, <laughs> Paul's like a brother, man. I love him, so I have to give him some hell. Anyway, let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Scott in Tennessee, and I had a question for you. Um, regarding banks and the property they foreclosed on, uh, whether or not you think that they may be actually holding on to those properties and not selling them on purpose. Uh, the reason I ask, um, a neighbor of mine was over at my house, and we were watching a, a documentary, uh, actually a pretty obscure one, called Iron City Blues, which is uh, uh, about a town that collapsed here in Tennessee, and we were talking about the collapse. And she brought up that there's a house, just three uh, houses down from where we live, that uh, it's been foreclosed on and has been abandoned for roughly three years. And at no point has there ever been a for sale sign in front of it. And she said her theory is that the bank is not trying to sell the house and not listing the house because it's on their books at the original purchase price of probably $250,000 and that it behooves them to do it that way because if they were to sell it at what it actually is worth now, um, which would be probably, I don't know, 30% less, then they would be actually taking a loss on their asset. They would have a, a phantom asset on their books than the cold hard cash. Is that true? It sounds legit, and it sounds like something they'd actually try to do. Um, I want to get your thoughts on that, Jack, and uh, that's all I got. Thanks for all you do. Well, you guys are right about the, what the banks are doing with holding properties in some instances, but you're not right about it for the right reason. One part is that they are taking a loss on that, and it, in some instances can be a phantom loss. So the listed the listed value of the income from the property uh, being a loss can do some things to drop their uh, profit and thereby avoid taxation to a degree, but that's not really that big a deal. It's not like a, a small business person doing it because the bank isn't paying the flipping taxes it's supposed to pay anyway. People keep talking about wanting to raise taxes, raise taxes, and this is where people don't get it. If you want to raise taxes, then just make the corporations pay the taxes that are all they're already supposed to be paying. We could co close the, almost the entire deficit if we stopped spending money on a lot of crap we don't need and did that. We don't have to change a tax rate one. In fact, we could probably lower the corporate tax rate to 20%. Uh, and be one of the lowest in the in the, in the civilized world uh, with a 20% corporate tax rate, and we could just make the corporations actually pay the taxes. Don't give them exemptions. Don't give them loopholes. Don't give them outs. Profit, tax, done. And uh, if you look at, let's say, the taxes that Apple paid last year, you figure that out versus how much money they've earned, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Okay, so it's not really that either. So what is it? Here's a couple things. One, the government did the bank bailout to where the banks now can afford to sit on the properties and they win no matter what they do. They can hold it and eventually sell it if the market recovers and they win. They can sell it for a loss and they win. The only person that loses is the person that lost the house and they lose in more ways than one, including if they do a short sale or something like that. The bank can actually profit twice. So some situations the banks just aren't really incentivized to do this. 
But there's a completely other dynamic that's been going on. And with QE3, it's been ramped up to an entire new level. And that is that the Federal Reserve has basically been buying the mortgage securities from the bank. Now, Federal Reserve doesn't give a damn if it makes a profit because it just prints its own money. So the Federal, if the Federal Reserve, through one of its contingencies or uh, uh, fiduciaries or directly through itself with quantitative easing, is actually holding this paper that leans against the property, there's not much incentive for them to sell it. They'll sell it back to the bank whenever it's in their own best interest to. So there's, there's one component of this. There's another component of this too, though. The fact that the Federal Reserve is doing this now is news to a lot of people. Like, like people are like, well, they're going to do that? Wow. Okay, you know who it wasn't news to? All the executives of all the big banks and lending institutions that took the bailout, waited two years, and then the Fed started buying up the mortgages. Do you know why it's not news to them? Because the Fed is made up of the member banks. And the people that really run the banks, not the public board members, are the ones that really pull the strings of the Fed. So they've known this entire time that if the market didn't rebound, that the Fed, Uncle Ben, would come in and quote-unquote buy which is print money and take away the risk for them. So it's been really easy for them to look at certain blocks of properties and go, we'll just sell that off at full face value to the Fed for fake money because they can afford to lose because they can't lose because it's not their money and it's not real money. It'll only become real money when they give it to us. Oh, wait a minute, actually we're giving it to ourselves. Isn't this a great scam? So there's your real reason for banks not being quite so motivated to liquidate foreclosed properties. There's another dynamic here. If I'm a bank and I have foreclosed properties, in spite of everything I said, there's some of those properties I want gone. I want them off the books and I want them sold to whoever will buy them. They're properties that I can make a profit on by selling back into the market and possibly even issuing the new loan to a lower risk buyer. One of the problems I have if I'm a bank, though, is how much surplus inventory is on the market right now. So if I take the properties that I really know I'm really going to get the crap beat out of me collectively, all the big banks together, and kind of leave them on the down low, so to speak, and we only actually put signs up and market the properties that are in our best interest to sell, we create an illusion of lower inventory of reasonably quality homes that are available. Therefore, the home buyer has less to look at and therefore they're more likely to buy the inventory that the bank has available. And anybody who thinks the banks aren't dragging their feet on this should go out and try to purchase a property with short sale right now and see how complicated, or in foreclosure, and see how complicated it can be. Because you know what the bank should be doing. The bank should be going, here's our price. They're not even doing that. They're really not. They're like, make a, make a, make a bid. And when you make a bid, they should be like, it's too low. We want X. You go, I'll give you a Y. And they'll go, me. I mean, you, there are so many properties right now that the banks could sell profitably to a buyer if they would just get with making a deal. I mean, it's all they got to just get with making a deal. They don't have to make a deal because once a month now, $40 billion as part of QE3 is being sucked up 
right? And then Operation Twist is helping them out in a totally different way that I won't go into today because it'll just go too long. But again, what you have to understand is the big banks, the big lending institutions holding the majority of these loans got bailout after bailout Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae. We got bailouts there. Then we got the overall bailout of all the, the big banks and lending institutions. That bought them time to wait to introduce Operation Quantitative Easing, where the Fed takes the risk away from the bank, holds it at the risk of the people, can afford to hold it as long as they want, and will decide when and if and who they will sell it back to. So that's what's really going on, and that's why all the dragging of the feet is going on. When people say capitalism doesn't work, what they don't understand is you're not looking at capitalism. This is, this is fascism. This is government and industry working collectively to control the population. If capitalism was working, what would happen is the bank would be sitting on a house that somebody can't pay for and going, oh shit, we got to get this off the books now. And this problem would have self-corrected way, way faster than it has here. These banks have been able to have their cake, eat it too, and make you pay for it. That's what's going on. That's what's going on right now. I did a great video, on a series of videos on quantitative easing and the QE3, uh, Q, why QE3 will work part three really explains this in depth. I'll put a link to it in today's show notes. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Ben in Reno. I just had a quick question for you. Uh, I just want to know your reasons why you suggested Russian as a language to learn. I'm interested in learning Russian, but I don't really have a whole lot of good reasons to learn it right now. Um, and while your past episodes mentioned it would be really, really helpful, that or Mandarin Chinese, um, I don't want to learn Mandarin, but I do want to learn Russian. What are your reasons for uh, choosing that language or wanting to learn it at least? Thanks. Bye. All right, well, here's the way I look at it. Um, let's start out with a completely different question, and you'll see how I draw lines across to different lines of reasoning. If you came to me right now and said, I want to invest in my future, and I want to be a pilot, and I'm considering either being an airplane pilot or a helicopter pilot, either rotor or fixed wing, and I don't really know what I'm going to do with it at all. Uh, I don't know if I ever want to be in an airline or whatever, but I do know that I want to fly something. Which one is the best investment? I would say you probably want to go become a rotor pilot pilot, a rotor pilot versus fixed wing. And you would ask me, well, why do you say that? And I would say because there's a shitload more people that can fly fixed wing craft that can, than can fly helicopters. So there is more likely to be maybe not the extreme uh, opportunity that exists for you know a 20-year experienced pilot with all kinds of training to get a great job working for American Airlines, but in general to be able to find employment and to be able to work your way up the ladder, a greater opportunity with rotorcraft because there's less of a labor pool to pull from. It even costs a little more to do, which there's a reason for that, right? Because there's less instruction also. You're more in demand. Now, how does that translate to Russian? Okay, the way I look at it going forward with growth economies, these are your growth economies. You've got India. India, native, uh, you know, typically, I guess technically the native language is Hindi, but almost everybody in India speaks English. And certainly in the Indian uh, uh, business community, English is just uh, expected. You've got the fact that Western society is going to be hampered, damaged, and fall back, but we're not going away. So that's Australia, that's England, that's... Uh, the United States, there's your English-speaking world. Um, Western Europe is going to fall harder, so your other languages in Western Europe are uh, less valuable even than English going forward with, with international trade and opportunity that will come as a result of it. So that leaves us with uh, Brazil, uh, Russia, and China as the three leading growth economies in the future. 
There's over 1.7 billion Chinese, okay? Many Chinese immigrants to the United States already, and there will be more as this trend continues. That means it's probably easier for the Chinese to have one of their people learn English than to rely on an English person who speaks uh, Chinese. And it's a much more difficult language to learn than the other languages that are on the table. If you wanted to do it, I think it has tremendous opportunity in the future, but I'm going with the, the rotor wing, and you'll understand in a second why. So that leaves us with Brazil and Russia. Brazil has its own unique opportunity because the native language is Portuguese, not Spanish. So there's a lot less Portuguese speakers than Spanish speakers, so that seems to represent a, a real opportunity. But I think there's so much opportunity in Central and South America and so much a segment of that population that speaks Spanish. The Spanish speaker has almost an equal opportunity there. They, they really do. Maybe not so much, but they do. Russia has got its act together. They have figured out all of the mistakes that they made economically as a socialist state, as a former Soviet Union, and they really do have this capitalism thing figured out. At this point, probably better than the United States. They're sitting on immense reserves. They have a huge opportunity with their land, uh, with their oil reserves, with their gas reserves. They have enough defense left that nobody's really going to jack with them. We're certainly not going to. Um, they have good relations with the Chinese better than we do. They have good relations with India as, as good as we do. And they have better relations with many of the nations in the Middle East than we do or likely ever will unless we stop blowing stuff up. Okay, um, And because of that, they're poised to really kind of sit in this catbird seat economically behind China, but overall with a lot more clout than one would expect. And there's not a lot of people out there that speak Russian in the Western world. So to me, as you look to the future, if you're going to be involved with any kind of employment that you want a unique skill set for, Portuguese, Russian, Chinese, and if you want to do something that has the least impact of others already being there, The, the narrowest space within the most opportunity, it's probably Russian followed by Portuguese followed by Chinese. The difference, though, is you got to choose between those if you're really interested in this kind of thing because while Chinese has a lot of speakers and a lot of people from China can speak English, the opportunity is probably the biggest of the three. So there's plenty of room. But it's a more difficult language to learn to read and write. Russian is a language that's kind of difficult, but once you start to pick it up, it gets easier as you go. It's like a downhill run. And writing it doesn't require a lot of knowledge beyond what you know from Greco-Roman. There's a few things, uh, this unique characters and stuff like that, but it's not a complicated language to learn to read and write either. So that's why I think it's really a good pick. So great question. Let's take another one. Oh, wait, one more really important reason I, I recommend Russian is if you have a group, whether it's family-based or a larger group, and you can together learn Russian, at least based, like maybe one person's really fluent in it, but one, uh, the rest of the group becomes at least fluent in a few phrases, sentences, commands, thoughts, things like that. It is the language that is one of the most least likely that if you're in operational security compromised mode and you use the language that anybody on the other end of it's going to know what the hell you're saying. I'd say Chinese is, is true as well, but Portuguese is so similar to Spanish, it's quite likely that somebody standing alongside of you that you don't want to know what you're saying will know what you're saying. Spanish, forget about it. 
Every third person in America is, is at least reasonably able to understand some basic Spanish. Russian? You ever listen to a person talk Russian? And how much Russians in our high school and all? You have no idea when you're in a, in a situation like that if the guy uh, that you think doesn't understand what you're saying to your buddy maybe was stationed in Germany or took German one, two, three, and four in high school and two years of it in college. You have no idea. You don't find a lot of people speak Russian. Uh, so it's got that op-sex side, too. Let's go ahead and take another question. Hey, Jeff. A couple quick questions for you. Next year, I would like to grow some peas that I can dry and store for things like pea soup. Um, I can't seem to find any information on what type of peas to grow or how to dry them. I was thinking this might be an expert counsel question. Maybe the guy from uh, Tenure Seeds. Which brings me to my second question. Is there a list of expert counsel people on your website? I can't seem to find one. Uh, love the show. Thanks. Uh, this is actually a really easy question to answer. Just about anything that's not like a snow pea is going to work well, and even some of the snow pea varieties. So anything that's listed as a shell pea. Um, so Green Arrow would be one example of a well-known heirloom. But pretty much if you go through a seed catalog and you see a pea and, and one of its uses is a shelling pea, which means you open the pods and stick, you know, knock the peas out of it, then you're, you're good to go. If you want to get to a point for dry storage, the best thing to do is really, really simple. You don't need to do a bunch of dehydrating or anything. Leave the pea pods on the plant until they begin to brown or even completely turn brown. Shell them out and done. They'll, they, they do it all by themselves. It's their reproductive method. And, uh, I mean, you can set them out to dry or whatever a little bit more, but generally speaking, when I want to save peas or beans or, uh, like cow peas or purple hole or anything like that, uh, if I want them to be, uh, for dry beans, I just pretty much let them dry. Uh, you, you, I've done some other stuff where you take them when they're still soft and you just put them out to dry and you can do that too. But, um, the easy thing, because usually what we're doing with peas is we're taking them as we want to use them and eventually the productivity goes beyond what we want to use as fresh and we just let them dry. I mean, that's, that, that's pretty much the way to go. Now, the thing is, when you get a hard, um, pea like that, You're looking at something akin to what you would make like a split pea soup with or something like that. If you wanted kind of the, let's say, um, the type of uh, something more akin to a fresh pea, and it's not going to be exactly the same but more akin to it, then you want to pick your shelling peas at their peak when they're nice and green and beautiful, when you you know, you take your thumb and shove them out of the pod and you can pop them in your mouth raw and they're just really sweet. Uh, that time of, you know, when it's perfect – and dehydrate them. And if you dehydrate the pea in that state, you're going to get something that cooks a little bit faster and comes back to more of a, a more of a fresh pea type thing. So those are kind of your two ways there, but the reality is it's not like there's a special pea for that as long as you're not looking at your snow peas or whatever. And a lot of your peas are dual purpose. You can pick them young and they make a good snap pea which means we eat the whole pod. You let them go a little bit longer, and they'll make a good shelling pea, which means we shell them and eat them as individual peas. And you can let them go to maturity and begin to turn brown, and they'll become hard all on their own, and that becomes a good storage pea. So the, the, the reality is, unless we're talking about a pea specifically marketed as like a snow pea, you, you're probably good to go. Let's take one more, and we'll wrap up for today. Hey, Jack. My name is Jesse from the great state of California. I had a question about location. Basically, 
I'm wanting to move, considering moving away from California. The main things I'm concerned about is excessive rule of law and also the volatile economy. The main thing that I'm balancing that with is families in California and also uh, losing my seniority at work. I work in public safety, and uh, seniority is security when it comes to that. Um, I'm trying to balance having working security um, with an advantageous location to live in. Um, Currently, I'm renting a house in a suburban area, and I wouldn't even be able to move for two to three years. Um, I appreciate uh, everything you do, and I hope you can get back to me on that one. Thanks. Well, given what I announced at the beginning of today's show, which is moving much closer back to family where we'd moved away from, um, I, I would have to say that this is a particularly timely question and many of the same things, not the job side, but uh, the family side things that we've struggled with. And I can tell you that... I do not like being so far away from my son and from my wife's family because they are my family to me more than the family that I share blood with, honestly. But I can deal with it fairly well. My wife, on the other hand, cannot. And a household is not made up of one person. And we have to take the entire household into consideration because, trust me, if your wife's not happy, you will not be happy. Even if you're relatively happy. Dorothy and I have been relatively happy, but I know that she's had a lot of... uh a lot of sorrow on her heart being away, and that doesn't make me angry or doesn't make us argue. It just makes me unhappy because I want my wife happy. So we have to put that into the equation as well. Um, so that is something I cannot answer for you. I can just tell you that depending on the existing relationships, how often you see each other, and what family means, is family children or is family brothers and sisters of grown uh, adults. That's It's a different equation. I know we don't want to believe that it is, but for most people it is. You know, When you've got you know, children that are old enough to be on their own and you move and you don't see your kids, that's different than not seeing your brother. It, uh, at least to me, it, it seems like it is. Uh, for some people, it may not. So you, that's why I said I can't answer the family equation. On the job security issue, I'd ask you if you're really concerned about California's financial future and if you understand a calculator, you should be, how secure a job in the public sector in California really is going forward. And as far as seniority, what good is seniority if you don't have a job anymore? And if you think seniority is going to bail you out as the fiscal crisis becomes into full form, specifically in states like California, it's probably not going to. So it's more about what job can you find? What role can you find for yourself? What income comes with that role? And what in, what would that income mean to you in a different place? Uh, you might find that some other states that are more liberty-oriented also have a lower cost of living, and a 10% reduction in your salary might re- result in a 30% increase in your uh, in your uh, actual spendable income uh, when you factor in the high cost of living in California. Uh, as far as the timing, that's up to you as well. I know you said you can only do that in the next, you know, can't do it for the next couple of years. The reasoning behind that is something you have to figure out for yourself and figure out if that's real. Because I'll tell you the thing about moving and making life changes. They're never easier to do than they are now. Right? They get harder every single day. If you are a person, and you know how guys how I feel like about college, like half the people that go belong there and half don't. But if you're a person that belongs in college... There's no easier time to go than, you know, being enrolled in school before you're done gradu- with your graduation ceremony in high school. Get in there and knock it out in four years or three and a half if you're motivated. Okay. If you work for three or four years 
go to college and come out the other end, you're probably far more marketable, but it will be more difficult to go. If you're planning on moving to the country someday, trust me, waiting till you're 65 and have a pension uh, it probably won't be as easy to do then as it is while you're really healthy, young, and energetic and go-getting at 35. So when it comes to moving, it's more about do I really want to do this than when's the right time with some logical concepts behind that. When we decided we wanted to change our lifestyle, it wasn't so much just about moving far away. It was about moving to a different type of life and not having a full-time job anymore. One of the things that Dorothy and I decided is, well, to do that, we have to be debt-free. We can't have a car payment, a truck payment, and a credit card payment and live this way. We have to completely eliminate that debt. The only debt we're ever going to be comfortable carrying again for the rest of our lives is going to be real estate debt against real property, and that is all. So the existing debt had to be worked off. It had to be paid off. So we, that was part of ours. But the timeline was, you know, as soon as we can do this. The other side of the timeline was we moved our son out of one school to another and back, and we're not going to do it while he's in school. And that for some people is a big deal and some people's not. If you're homeschooling, it's not a deal at all, right? One of the advantages there. But the other side of it is I would tell a parent, if your kids are like in grade school, Never hesitate to move because your kids are in grade school. They'll be upset. They'll be angry. They'll cry. They'll get over it in 15 minutes. They'll be playing Nintendo with another kid. When you get them into the junior high, high school world, it does get harder for them to move. It gets a lot harder for them to move, especially in the high school years. Um, especially the high school years. That's really the tough time where the cliques are well-formed, the friendships are well-formed. And unless you've got like this you – know, there's – Some of you guys don't need to worry about it. There's kids that are everybody's friend. They walk into a room and they're talking to 10 people. It's rare, though. So that's that's another consideration. But you have to make it for yourself. But I will tell you not to underestimate the impact of being away from family, uh, especially if you have older children. So if the plan is, well, I'll wait till they graduate and then I'll move and they can stay here, you got to really think about that because it's been the hardest thing for me is, uh, is not having my son around. I think it was good for us, uh, for myself, my wife, and my son. I think he had some growing up to do. And I think having two years without us there as a crutch made that, that young boy grow into one hell of a young man, and I'm very glad we did it. But at this point, I don't like not seeing him you know, for three months at a time. I find it uh, very hard on my heart, and you got to think about that too. But you also have to think about your overall happiness and your overall life. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of ways to handle that. Part of it is... You know, is there just a better place in California for you um, where you're not so far away? Or is there a place just across the state line, you know, depending on where you live? Is, you know, is, is you know, Nevada an option? You know, just, just is there a place that's just, you know, it's only if you if you're within three or four hours or less, you can make it work a lot better than you think you can with the family thing. You start moving past five hours, it gets really difficult. It makes overnight a requirement on any travel. A two-hour drive to see family, you can leave at 7 o'clock in the morning, be there at 9, 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon, go home and be home in the summertime before the sun goes down. It's just not that big a deal. You start moving outside of that window, it gets tougher. What I would say to anybody, though, is whatever it is that's really your dreams about the way you want to live, start working on it now. Do not wait. And even if you make a mistake or you do something that wasn't really a mistake, but you go, this isn't quite right, The younger you are when you make the attempt, the more times you have to adjust and change your mind until you find what you're really looking for. 
and then plant the roots deep. Well, if you wait till you're 65 and you find out that it wasn't all you thought it was, and now you're on a fixed income, and you've bet the farm, so to speak, to have a farm, it's tough. Young, energetic couples, you guys can get it done. And if you decide it was a mistake, that's what they make erasers on pencils for. You back up and you change. You make a decision to do it another way. And you'll do it better and you'll progress until you find what you're really looking for. Don't let fear, don't let doubt, don't let uncertainty. And don't even let fear of what's going to happen in the future get in your way. We can't know the future for sure. But I'll tell you this, the people that are doing acting, reaching, striving for more, that are building the life they want, come hell or high water, whatever crisis we come in, those people will do best, and those people will come out on the other side of it, and they will have what they're looking for eventually. They will fight for it. Those who are saying, I'm going to wait until it happens, or I'm going to wait for a better time or whatever, when you do get hit, you're not going to be prepared no matter how much stuff's in your garage. And with that, this has been another episode of the Survival Podcast with Jack Spierko, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't. In our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better a better way Nobody up there cares, they're living for 